Open your Bible to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. We are in a series on our missional priorities, gospel witness, the reason for our existence. These are the things that are core to our existence. Truth be told, all five of them have strong overlap with the others. It's kind of like a five-stranded rope, which is a thing. And um, it, it, it really, uh, they, they all work together. You can't really pull one of them out of it and, and have our mission on track. And, and I certainly can't say everything about all of them in, in one sermon, but, or any of them in one sermon, but uh, here we are. So uh, Genesis 12 and our opening text today. I've got four texts that are our text today, but our opening text will be uh, the first three verses of that chapter. And if you would join me in reading God's word. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, go from your country your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever, or literally the one who curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We may not fully conceive of just how significant that moment that we just read is to each of us today. The world was on a downward spiral of death and destruction. And you interrupted it to bless the world. You chose a man who would obey you in order that you, through the one you chose, could bless the world. We pray, Lord, that you would show us the significance for this event for our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last year, I was at a weekend conference uh, put on by a Bible translation uh, organization that does excellent work, to be sure. Though something was nagging me about its theme. Posters and slides uh, stationed in various places at the event quoted Matthew 24, 14, quote, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, uh, and then the end will come. This, along with a, a um, thing about Vision 2025, which sets a goal to have the Bible in every known language by the year 2025, which will hasten Christ's return. In other words, if we can just get the Bible translated into all the languages of the world, we we will have made a huge step toward the return of the Lord. I have problems with understanding that verse that way. On so many levels. I can't even begin to tell you all the problems I have with it, but let's just pretend for a moment that that, generally speaking, is the point of the verse, which clearly the context indicates otherwise. But let's pretend for a moment that's the point, that if the gospel is preached to everybody in the world, that that will hasten the Lord's return, that if that doesn't happen, the Lord can't return, and so hence we're waiting for that before we can have the Lord return. Let's assume that's true, which we shouldn't, but for the sake of the illustration. Although printing Bibles in every language would be wonderful, 
and I support it, I'm for it. It is not the mission, nor would it be necessary for Jesus to return, nor would it be necessary for the gospel to be preached in all the world. During the first two centuries following the apostolic age, the church arguably had a greater impact on the world than at any other period, and the printing press had not been invented. They weren't concerned with getting words to people as the first step in reaching the world, but with living transformed lives so that they had something to explain. Because as Peter said, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have. They expected people to be asking questions about the hope that they have, the basis of their life. How did they have such an impact on the world? How did they grow at such a rapid rate when all the odds were against it? Well, according to Tertullian, Tertullian, the outsiders looked at the Christians and saw them energetically feeding poor people and burying them, caring for boys and girls who lacked property and parents, and being attentive to aged slaves and prisoners. And they said, to quote Tertullian, Vide, look, how they love one another. Alan Kreider says about this, quote, Christianity's truth was visible. It was embodied and enacted by its members. Sometimes the gospel isn't visible because we've embraced a Gnostic mission. We are out to save souls, but not lives. We have made the mission about what is ultimate, at the expense of everything else necessary and important. I mean, that, that's a little bit like saying breathing is more ultimate than eating. I mean, because why? Well, it's obviously more ultimate. If you don't breathe for how many seconds? I mean, minutes? I mean, a couple of minutes? you dead. You can go 20 days without eating and be very much alive. Okay? So breathing clearly is ultimate, and eating is not. So if we neglect eating and only focus on breathing, how alive will we be in a few months? Not very, right? You can't do that. Or let's say we take breathing, eating, and drinking as oh, those are ultimate, and so we're not going to focus on anything else like, say, exercise, activity. Well, you may well be alive, but you certainly won't be healthy, will you? And you won't be alive as long, in all probability, by following that logic. The early church wasn't selling tickets to heaven. They cared about people. They cared about the whole person. More often than not, when Scripture uses the words that we translate as soul, in the Old Testament it would be nephesh, in the New Testament it would be suke, more often than not, when it uses those words, it's referring to human life, not immaterial versus material. That's a Gnostic idea, that the soul is all that matters is the soul, this immaterial part of us, the physical part of us doesn't matter. In fact, more often than not, the words nephesh and suke are translated life or person. Only where context allows do they translate it as soul, which we've taken to mean something completely separate from the person as a whole. Before a plane takes off, they fill out a manifest. It might read something like 205 souls on board. They aren't in the business of flying around disembodied souls but whole persons. 
But they call them souls to distinguish, for instance, that it isn't crew versus passengers. It's all of them. 205 souls on board. We must get the mission back on track. To do that, let's start where the mission began. God's mission to the world. Chris Wright identifies the starting point of mission when he says, it is not that God has a mission for His church in the world, but that God has a church for His mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. Or we could even add the word His mission. John Stott wrote, Mission arises from the heart of God Himself and is communicated from His heart to ours. Mission arises from the heart of God Himself. Mission begins with God. God's mission turns us outward to the world. We'll explore this outward focus, what we're calling gospel outreach, under four headings. First, God's mission to restore blessing. Then Abraham's mission to be a blessing. Then Israel's mission to be a blessing. And finally, our mission to be a blessing. Uh, Needless to say, there'll be shorter points than if I have three or two or, you know, there's four. First, God's mission to restore blessing. When God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, He goes on a blessing spree. In chapter 1, verse 22, He blesses the fish in the sea and the birds in the air that they might be fruitful and increase. In one twenty-eight, He uh, blesses humanity that they might be fruitful and increase. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, at the end of that scene, he blesses the seventh day and made it holy, giving everyone a day off, even the animals, as we later discover, that everyone might be renewed in him. Arguably, he blessed the whole planet that was formless and void so that it could feed humanity. Many fail to see the creation story as uh, being largely about food. Uh, But it is. And we we fail to see that because we don't realize that eating is an agricultural act. For us, food comes from the store. It's the product of industry. As Wendell Berry notes, it's an industry that, if they could make a profit creating pre-chewed food to be inserted directly into your mouth, they would. But, of course, we just happen to like the taste of food and the whole experience just a little too much, so they're never going to make a profit doing that. For food to grow, it requires seasons. It is affected by weather, flooding, and environmental issues. Genesis 1 is all about blessing the planet to bless or feed us, that we might spread that blessing to the ends of the earth. So, if we want to keep eating, we better take seriously our call to take care of the planet in Genesis 2. After Adam rebelled against God, the curse replaced the blessing. In chapter 3, right after the fall, or right after they they broke God's law and sin, God curses the serpent for its role. In verse 14 and verse 16, he curses childbearing with painful labor for Eve's role in it. In verses 17 and 18, he curses the ground, the Adama, from which Adam uh, had come, or the human had come. and, And now he would work with painful labor, introducing thorns and eventual death. In Genesis 12... After 11 chapters of a downward spiral of curse, of the curse, God sets out to restore blessing to the world. He chooses to do it through a man named Abram. We now know him as Abraham because later his name was changed. 
the long and the short of it is that God tells Abram, go, be a blessing. Go, be a blessing in the first two verses of that chapter. The goal, all peoples, families of peoples, clans on earth will be blessed through you. And even when God says that he will curse the one who curses Abram, he limits it. I will bless those who bless you, plural, those who bless you. I'll bless, plural, those who bless you. And whoever, singular, curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, the predominance of it is I'm going to do blessing. And those exceptions, when somebody's coming at you and curses you, I'm going to deal with that. Okay? But God's mission is to bless abundantly. All peoples on earth is... That word earth in that line, all peoples on earth or all families on earth, depending on which translation you have, is not from the more common word for earth, Eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the Eretz, the earth. Okay. Uh, It's not from that word. But Adama, it's the word used in Genesis 2 where it says that God made the the human, the Adam, from the dust of the Adama, the ground. Okay. Showing our intrinsic relationship to the earth itself. Here, all families of peoples on the Adama will be blessed. It seems to imply an aspect of our common humanity and common connection to the ground. In other words, it's not every person on a planet, but every person who came from the same soil as us. That's who I'm out to bless. All of humanity. God is on a mission to restore blessing to the world. And he chooses Abram to carry out that mission. Christians today get caught up at times in arguments over election or being chosen by God in contrast to freely choosing God. Now I think the whole construct of that argument is false because it presumes that we can't live with mystery, that we have to somehow solve mystery, but the Bible seems to be quite comfortable with mystery quite comfortable with mystery. But regardless, I think it's the wrong question because the more important question is chosen for what? Chosen for what? And the answer is chosen to participate in God's mission to bless the world. That's what Abram was chosen for. God's, to participate in God's mission to bless the world. That's what Israel, as we'll see in just a moment, was chosen for. And that's what we've been chosen for. What is it to bless? What does it mean to bless? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, to bless is to undo the curse in people's lives such that they can begin to flourish, to be fruitful and multiply. That's what it means to flourish. It's just shorthand for being fruitful and multiplying. To flourish is to experience the blessing of God. So that leads to our second heading, Abram's mission to be a blessing. What does God tell Abram? First, he tells him to go. Verse 1, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Go. Second, he tells Abram that he will bless him and make him into a great nation, and he, Abram, will be a blessing. So he will be a blessing, second. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. 
In other words, I will bless you in order that you will be a blessing to the nations, to all the peoples. Then, thirdly, then the Lord tells Abram the extent of the blessing. What is the extent of this blessing? All families or people groups on earth will be blessed through Abram. Abram is chosen to be a channel of God's blessing to the world. Abram is chosen to be a channel of God's blessing to the world. To be clear, these are not just random acts of kindness. You want to do a random act of kindness? Fine, do a random act of kindness. But all people being blessed through Abram means that the recipients will know that Abram's, Abraham's God is behind it. They're done in the name of Christ, so they're not random. They're done because of Christ. You understand the distinction I'm making there? It's not just, you know, some random act of kindness is going to change the world. It'll have, it'll have an effect. That's good. But a random act of kindness done in the name of Christ, which makes it no longer random, <laughs> will change the world. Abraham's calling to bless the world remains central to God's dealings with him. And by the way, I, I keep interchanging Abram and Abraham because at this point in the story, his name's Abram, but we know him as Abraham, so it'll just be all mixed up. That's okay. <clears throat> when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their lack of, of hospitality and care for the needy, now, so we're fast-forwarding in the story. But I want you to notice as we fast-forward, we go through Abraham's life, that this calling to be a blessing to the world remains central to God's promise to him. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are being destroyed according to Ezekiel, I believe it's chapter 16, because of their lack of proper hospitality and care for the needy. But there we read that the Lord God said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abram will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. There it is again. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. In Genesis 18. So note again, all nations will be blessed. How will he be a blessing for all people? So here we learn a little bit of something of how. By teaching his descendants to do what is right and just. So when his descendants are doing what is right and just, that's going to have an impact on blessing the world. Then at the end of the Abraham story, after his faith has been refined and it is now pure, it's at its best, he's been willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar. The message from the Lord is this, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and, listen, through your offspring, here it is again, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. It's in Genesis 22. Now, back in Genesis 12, where the story of Abram begins... God declared that he would make Abram a blessing to the world. Now, after Abram has learned to walk by faith, we discover that it is his obedience, the obedience of his faith, that stands behind his being a blessing to the world. 
It was just as sure in chapter 12 at the beginning that it would happen. But now we see that God will work through Abraham walking in God's ways to bless the world. Chris uh, Chris Wright comments, The important point to notice is the way God's intention to bless the nations is combined with human commitment to a quality of obedience that enables us to be the agent of that blessing. Enables us to be an agent of that blessing. And that leads to our third point. So, God's mission to bless the world. Abraham's calling to be a blessing. Uh, uh, and, and then now Israel's mission to be a blessing. Exodus 19, uh, 4 through 6. You yourself, So this is Exodus. Israel has just been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They've come across the wilderness after going through the Red, the Red Sea. And, and all of Pharaoh's army dies. They, they, they've gotten to the other side. And they've gotten to Mount Sinai. And here's what they hear. You yourselves from the Lord have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, here's their calling. Why did God do all of this? Why did he choose to bring them out of Egypt and do this? Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. God didn't choose Israel because he didn't want to bless the rest of the world. He chose Israel as a treasured possession to be a kingdom of mediators and set them apart to reach the rest of the world. The ESV translates this closer to the meaning, and I think it, it, it makes the point more clear. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for or because... All the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was chosen not instead of the nations, but from among the nations because all the peoples on earth belong to God. Israel's calling was a priestly calling to mediate God's blessing to the rest of the world. They were called to be a priestly kingdom. A mediating kingdom between God and whom? Well, not themselves. Between God and the rest of the peoples of the world. Israel's obedience was necessary to the task. If you obey me fully. If you obey me fully. Natural Israel failed to fulfill that calling. That's the story of much of the Old Testament. The prophets, to be sure. And, and, and a lot of the historical books, it, uh, much of it is to show us that they failed to obey him fully. In fact, they failed to obey him at many times at all. There's so much of that. Ultimately, of course, they fulfilled that calling because through them came Jesus Christ, who mediates that blessing to the world. Jesus is presented as the true Israel in the New Testament. More on that in a moment. But that Jesus fulfilled that he obeyed God fully all the way to the point of death, and he mediates that blessing to the world. Part of Israel's failure to bless the world was that they began thinking of the nations as their enemies rather than as people to bless. That, you know, us-them mentality. 
We, humans love to do that. We like drawing hard lines between us and other people that we disagree with. And they are the enemy. And they are the ones that we have to destroy or else they'll destroy us. And as soon as we get into that, we stop being a blessing. We can't be a blessing because they're the enemy. But Jesus said, okay, fine, love your enemies. If, if, if in fact, they're your enemy, go love them. Go bless them anyway. In Jesus' time, Rome was the enemy. Israel rebelled. They hated. They resisted Rome. Jesus meets a Roman soldier, a centurion, the enemy, and he heals his servant. And then he teaches us to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us. Jesus turned it all upside down because he was Abraham's seed. Well, that, that story of, of Israel continues. Their calling to bless the world continues throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah, there, there's so many places I could have gone. I just had to pick one. I had another one, and this morning I changed it to this one. So Isaiah 42, verse 1, and then verses 6 and 7. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And then in verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Now, Isaiah's first audience would have understood the servant of the Lord to be Israel. They would have understood that this was their calling. The ones who, uh, his chosen one, Israel, in whom he delighted, who would bring justice to the nations. I mean, it, it lines up with, well, I, I, Isaiah chapter 2, the other place I wanted to really go. But, but then, how about Exodus, right? In, in ch- chapter 19 that we read a moment ago, and, and all the promises to Abram uh, as well. They understood that. They were called in righteousness to be a light to, for the Gentiles, to open eyes that were blind, to, to, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sat in darkness. However, they failed to fulfill it. Christ, as the true Israel, the Israel true to its calling, in other words, did fulfill it. Yet, Paul applies these verses to himself as well. Why? Because all who are in Christ are the seed of Abraham and heirs of the promise, according to Galatians chapter 3. This calling has implications for us because we too, this is about us now that we are in Christ. Okay, it has implications for us today and that leads to our fourth heading, our mission to be a blessing. And I'm going to start with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I want you to notice this morning that the Great Commission picks up on Abraham's call to go and be a blessing to the nations. We are called to go to the nations and make disciples. The three elements in Abram's call are found here. The first, if you remember from when we were in Genesis 12, 
go. Go to the country that I will show you, he tells Abram. Go. What does he say? Go into all the world. Okay. Of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. So go to all the world. Second, the extent to all nations. And third, be a blessing. Now, you might say, I don't see be a blessing in there. But let me show you be a blessing in there. Because be a blessing is right there in the middle of it. Okay? Because he says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Where in Matthew's gospel is the majority of Jesus' teachings that he's commanded us? The Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a handbook on how to bless people. That's the whole thing. It starts with blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn. I mean, it starts with that, but then it goes on. Give to the one who asks of you, forgive. I mean, everything in it is about blessing others. You want to go be a blessing to the world? Follow the Sermon on the Mount. Do what Jesus commanded us to do, and we will be a blessing to the world. Although it tells us how to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything, it doesn't tell us how to get converts. It starts with baptism, so they are assuming that the person's already been converted. It never talks about how to get converts. I find that interesting. We probably make something of it. And I'll, I'll conjecture some things here. Maybe the early church had it right. They did not largely focus on making converts. They focused on teaching the converts they had to do what Jesus said. That, mixed with patience, being in it for the long haul, playing the long game, however you want to word that, more than anything, resulted in more converts. The Roman world had civic and religious groups which required dues to be paid regularly and provided services to its members, unless, of course, they had not paid their dues. In addition to being networking groups for business purposes with economic advantages, they provided other necessary services like burial for their dead. The poor were welcome to join, of course, there's no discrimination, if they paid the very expensive dues. Which, of course, they couldn't. Christians had a social and religious organization as well. It's called the church. That based membership on following the teachings of Jesus, not paying one's dues. They buried their dead, even the poor. They provided for their own, regardless of economic participation. Generosity was not measured by uh, size of a donation, but by the amount remaining after the donation, such that a widow's offering of a worthless mite was more generous than a wealthy giver's donation because she had nothing left when she was done. When plagues hit, Roman civic organizations offered sacrifices to appease the gods or, or the god or god supposed to, to have brought the plague, the church did not, nor did they retreat to their political corners and discuss cons- what conspiracy was behind it. They, quote, did practical deeds to help suffering people. They cared for their own sick, and soon, at the instruction of the leaders, the sick of the wider community. This increased the number of sicknesses within the church, because they're caring for the sick. And yet, the church grew. 
hey, let's go be a part of that bunch. They're all getting more sick quick, more quickly than we are, but, but man, look what they're doing. Let's go, let's go join them. Outsiders were not drawn by their worship services because they were not allowed to attend. <laughs> Think about that. I'm not suggesting we stop allowing unbelievers to come. I'm just saying this is what they did. So if we're looking for why they grew, it has to be something other than, say, great lighting, great worship band, and, and dynamic, of course, preaching. <laughs> that wasn't in it. What drew them in? Remember what we said at the beginning in quoting Tertullian or about Tertullian and what he said, and then quoting him. Remember what the outsiders said. Vide, look how they love one another. That's what drew them in. Look how they love one another. So the Great Commission picks up on Abraham's call. We too are called to be a holy priesthood just like Israel was. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Where did that come from? He's drawn right out of Exodus 19 that we read earlier. He's he's pulling right from Exodus 19 and now saying, oh, by the way, this is you. Just as Israel is called to be a priesthood to bless the world on God's behalf, the church has inherited that calling. It certainly involves declaring the praises of God. Amen. But notice that the focus in what follows is on behavior. Good lives that lead others to glorify God. Verse 11, the very next verse. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. (laughs) They accuse the Christians of being the reason for the plagues. You've stopped worshiping our gods, and now we have plagues. And yet they saw their love for people that were sick with the plague, and they were drawn to join them. All of it was counterintuitive. It leads to what we quoted earlier from 1 Peter 3.15, that people would inquire about the hope they have. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. See, they would have a listening ear for the gospel. What this means for us is that we must seek the well-being of people. In a society as segmented and as separated as our own, it's going to take effort to intersect in the lives of those around us. That's the key difference between them and us. Well, there's so many differences, but in terms of how we live, they intersected with the rest of the world all the time. It was just part of their life as they're walking here and going there. Everything they did was in walking distance of their home. Everything. They couldn't get in their car and drive to another town. Everything was in walking distance. And because they were in walking distance, they were 
mingling among the people. We don't do that. We go to a job. Many times we move from another place to get here. We go to that job. That's where most of our relationships are. We go home to our family. We go to church, and that's our relationships. But we never intersect with our own neighborhoods, the community around the church. We don't do that. So we will have to intentionally put ourselves in places to intersect with the world around us because we're called to be a blessing to them. Some years back, Scott and Stephanie Snyder, who had been a part of the, a, a church in Bradenton that we had planted previously, um, <clears throat> they, they sensed a call to go to a remote region of Thailand. They moved their family there because that was the best way to learn the language, just to be there and then to minister to the people. And I received this message back in 2018. Scott writes, As you know, we are learning Central Thai, the, the language of the people of Central Thai. It is difficult, but we are content with our progress in language and praying that the Lord would continue to help us. Listen, it is hard to be patient for the process of learning to occur. Our hearts want to teach and disciple, ties, but we take heart and look to the near future when we'll be able to care for them well. Thank you for your many continued prayers before the Father. We join you in asking that he would bring about his purposes here in Isan, Thailand in his perfect time. If we don't have the same language problem here. We can talk to people that we don't know. We can go in and share the gospel. We have the same English language, to be sure. As far as that goes, that's not the barrier. But we do have a barrier. We, too, need to learn our community well. What moved the Snyders to do this was, to lo- what was their love for the people. And that's what it takes for us, too. We are all on a mission field. You don't have to move to another country to be on the mission field. The ends of the earth are here. I mean, remember where that was spoken. Jerusalem, Galilee, Israel. We're at the ends of the earth. So you're on a mission field. In fact, that place is a mission field too, but everything's a mission field. We should strive to live in this community in such a way that If we shut down, if this church dries up and blows away, the community would notice. See, we have to ask the question, if we shut down, dried up and blew away, would anyone in this community besides us care? If the answer is no, then we're not doing our job. If the answer is maybe, maybe we've started to do our job. We have minimal impact. I'd like it to get to where the answer is, oh my goodness, there'd be an uproar. We've got to turn ourselves outward for that to happen. I'd like to say that we know what the greatest needs of our community are, but we don't. We can't learn them from a study. You can buy studies. They won't tell you the answer to that question, although they claim to. It'll only help us make more generalizations, which we're always good at anyway. Stereotype, generalization, about the same thing. It will require meeting the people and getting to know them and what they need. We'll have to work at creatively finding ways to intersect with them in order to serve them and meet them. And when we do that, then we'll know more clearly what we need to do to really serve them. It's a process. It's going to take patience. I recently read an article in which the author described a popular trend for engaging new people in, in churches. Christians hanging out in coffee shops trying to meet people. 
But the author noted, you meet people a lot like you and people that can afford $4 coffee. And, and, and very few perceived needs. Yeah, it's $6 now, but anyway, that's beside the point. <laughs> then he tells of some in, in a church in a different community who got to know their community and realized that there was a great need at the laundromats. People not having enough money to finish a load or who had their kids there for long hours while they did laundry because they had no one to watch the load. So they began hanging out at laundromats and talking to the people and meeting needs, offering to watch their loads so they could go spend time with their children. The point here is not to start laundromat outreach, but to help us realize that we have to get to know our community in order to know its needs. Gospel outreach is a missional priority because it reminds us that we must look beyond ourselves to those whom we are called to bless. Blessing them involves anything in Christ's name that restores them to a place of flourishing. It doesn't have to be that we share the gospel, as we like to put it, with them in that moment. Oh, do we eventually want them to know Christ? Absolutely. But we're called to bless the whole person. Whole souls. Not disembodied spirits. We gather from the harvest fields to be strengthened, formed, and blessed, nurtured, healed, and more. We do this twice a week, maybe, on Sundays, and gather in community groups. And that's wonderful. But its purpose is to give us the grace we need for living the rest of the week in the harvest field. We need to find ways to reach out both as a community and as individuals intentionally looking for ways to bless our neighbors, family members, work associates. While the nations will ultimately only be blessed by their association with Abraham, i.e. Christ, that doesn't mean the only way to bless is by sharing the gospel. We always bless in the name of Christ, but it's not a meal ticket earned by hearing a gospel message. We bless because we love not to achieve a goal. Our having gospel outreach as a missional priority is not a tactic to grow the church. If it becomes a tactic to grow the church, they'll see right through that. Just some clothing, closing thoughts here to wrap this up. The... Um, Authors of a book called Becoming a Missionary Church noted this. Recovering the missionary nature of the church is urgent because this is what the church is in its biblical identity. If the church is to faithfully be the church of the New Testament, it must be a missionary body. This is not an optional extra or something that might enrich the church, nor is this a formula for growth or success. In other words, it isn't something we should do if we want to be a healthy church. It is something we must do if we're going to be a church at all. I've not talked a lot, though here at the end a little bit, about sharing the gospel. And that is eventually essential. But traditionally in our circles, that's the only focus. Uh, it gets back to the, you know, we focus a lot on breathing. We forget about eating. We're going to still be in trouble. So I want to talk about eating and exercise a little bit more today than I am about the gospel per se 
uh, today, because that's where our focus has often been. Too often we think about outreach as an event to which we get unbelievers to come with whatever gimmick we use to get them to get here so that we can preach to them and they can get saved. And when I say we, that's just the general way that the church world does it. We'll, we'll get the low-hanging fruit that way, and you know, there's something to be said for getting low-hanging fruit. It's better than just leaving it there to rot, to be sure. Some refine that to figuring out how to have a conversation with them so that we can preach to them so that they can get saved. But that's not a whole lot different. It's just a little bit different. It's important that their well-being as a whole person is what we seek, not just the well-being of disembodied souls. The best resource we have as a church for discovering the needs of the people in our community is you. It's not a survey we buy. It's you. We must intentionally engage neighbors, the community around the church, your workplaces, etc., etc., and seek ways to bless. We need to engage uh, desiring, engage them while desiring to know them. Like learning a language, learning a person. Not so that you can do something to change their minds about something, but because they're a person who came from the Adama just like you. Go, be a blessing. This is God's mission, and we have been chosen to join Him in that mission. This morning we have the joy of partaking of the Lord's Supper. And at this table, uh, I think we can learn a lot about blessing for the world, because blessing for the world, we learn here, is costly. It's costly to Christ. It was indeed. It meant that His body was broken and His blood shed. Take it. Eat. This is my body. Drink from it. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant. But in partaking of this meal... It also implies that we too may well be broken and distributed in lesser ways, to be sure, but in order that we might bring blessing to all the families of the earth. If we can have those uh, that are helping with the Lord's table come forward. And as we go through these things, let's, in our hearts, go before the Lord. And seek the things. Maybe there's things you need to deal with with the Lord that you came here with. But maybe there's some things in what I've been talking about that you need to allow the Lord to speak to you about how He has given His life for the world. And let that impact your own heart for the world. We'll all receive, get the elements and then partake together. If you're not a believer and you're here today, well, we're glad you're here, first of all. We just ask that you pass on this meal. It's a meal for those who believe in Christ. If you've come to believe during the course of this meeting, well, please feel free to join with us in partaking of the one who gave himself up for you. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said... Take it, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. We'll go ahead and 
uh, you'll come up these aisles and take the elements, and then when you get back to your seat, we'll all partake together. But again, be praying. If you need to go to somebody and talk to them, go to them. Uh, If you just want to pray with someone else while we're all getting the elements, feel free to do that as well.